Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance or what woman having 10 silver coins if she loses one coin does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it and when she has found it she calls together her friends and neighbors saying rejoice with me for i have found the coin that i had lost just so i tell you there is joy before the angels of god over one sinner who repents and he said there was a young man a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. When he'd spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that he, the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost. And is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look. These many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Well, today... Is December 1st, only 24 more days until Christmas. And as I see with some of you pumping your fists, there's eager anticipation and bubbling excitement that can barely be controlled. Yet for others, there's mixed emotions and maybe often a little dread because 
what am I going to get them this year? Am I going to be able to get them a present that they like? And will I get it on time? Or will there be a mad dash to the mall? Or seeing how much I have to pay and overnight shipping to get it here in time for Christmas? Well, what if you wanted to give something to God that you knew he would enjoy? What is the present that you could give him that would bring delight to his heart? Well, we don't have to guess because here Jesus gives us three parables and each one of them is telling us what brings delight and joy to God. And Jesus is telling these parables because not everyone rejoices at what God rejoices at. And this morning, as we look at this, we're going to see in the first two verses that there's grumbling at the Savior. Then in verses 3 two through 10, Jesus tells of joy and finding a lost sheep and coin. But then the last parable is really an open-ended question. Do you have joy or do you grumble in the lost coming home and finding a lost son? But first, in verses 1 through 2, we see this grumbling at the Savior because as Jesus goes along, the people who come around him, some of them at least, are tax collectors and sinners. Now this is not a new pattern, for Jesus had pursued these people already. All the way back in Luke 5, Jesus had gone to Levi the tax collector and said, follow me. He had initiated the relationship. He had pursued him. Now, many people, especially the religious leaders, found this scandalous because while many of us may not like the tax collector, tax collectors in Israel were especially hated because they raised taxes for Rome. They were considered traitors. And not only that, they would often take more than they were allotted. And so they were extortioners. And so the Israelites hated them virulently. And so they excommunicated them from their synagogues. They shamed their extended family and would not even allow them to be a judge or witness in court. Yet Jesus welcomes. He eats with such people. Not only that, but Jesus pursued sinners. And that was a broad word. It would refer to people like murderers, robbers, deceivers, and those with dishonorable jobs. And yet, the religious leaders find this scandalous. Why would Jesus hang out, welcome such riffraff, such scum of the earth? You know, in their society, eating a meal with someone was more than just showing friendship. It suggested acceptance. And thus, before we condemn the religious leaders too much, we have to realize there's a teaching in Scripture that seems to be saying what they're saying. You know, don't bad company corrupt good morals? Shouldn't we want our children to hang out with people who are and encourage them in what's right? If your child goes off to college and they come back and they tell you about all their friends who like to party and all their friends who are rebels, you might be thinking, yeah, maybe you could pick some better friends. Or they might even quote Psalm 1-1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Why would you go be with such people? Yet, such passages are warning of engaging with the behavior of sinners, not in being friends to seek them and call them to repentance. Jesus welcomes and eats with such to draw them to God not delight in their sin with them. And that's the key difference. Now it is true. Bad company corrupts good morals. And so we have to strike this delicate balance of seeking friends who encourage us towards godliness while at the same time reaching out to those who need 
the Savior. And Jesus here, while befriending sinners, he never accepts their lifestyle or approves or applauds it, though he accepts, accepts them as people. He walks this middle road of not ostracizing them and avoiding them, but yet neither approving and applauding them. He accepts them as people made in God's image, but people who also need to be restored to God. Except they're not going to be restored if he doesn't seek them, if he doesn't befriend them himself. And so from early in this passage, we're being questioned. Would such people be welcome around us? Welcome here. You know, like, would we say, hey, you'd be welcome here. We, yeah, we'd love if people came here who are like that. Are we like Jesus going out and seeking them so they know they are welcome here? You know, often we see that's Jesus' pattern. First he goes, he goes to the sinner, he goes to the tax collector, and then, not surprisingly, they come to him. Do we seek them out? If they come, do we invite them in our homes, or do we say, eh, I'm glad they come to church? Let's maintain our relationships there at a safe distance from us. You know, we often, though, are offer honest, a little intimidated by such people. What if they harm us? What, what are they going to do to us if we open our lives to them? And yet, this is often a two-way street. I've mentioned before Mez McConnell and his amazing testimony of growing up in a broken, dysfunctional home and coming to Christ. And then as he became a believer and then went off to Brazil to serve in the inner city, many children, many came to Christ, and yet he eventually led his father to Christ back in Scotland. And then he was troubled because his dad was too scared to go into churches. He had lived in a broken life, but are they going to welcome me there? And so Mez gave up his ministry in Brazil and moved back to Scotland to plant churches in inner cities where they would realize they are welcome there too. And yet the religious leaders here in Luke 15 want nothing to do with these people, and they're grumbling that Jesus would even befriend them. Thus, Jesus, in order to defend himself, to show God's heart, he tells three parables. First, in verses 3 through 10, we see joy in finding a lost sheep and coin. And the first one is the joy of finding a lost sheep. You know, the shepherd is... He gets ready to put the sheep down for the night. He counts them. And here he goes, 97, 98, 99. Well, that was the last one. Did I miss count? Okay, we'll go again. 97, 98. Nope, that's 99. I left one. I lost one. Where is it? So he leaves the 99 and he goes out. Now notice he didn't say, well, that's one out of 100. That's 1%. You're going to lose some every once in a while. Yeah, you got to expect as a shepherd, you're not all going to make it to adulthood. So what's the big deal? And if I go, it's going to be getting dark. I might get hurt. So, eh, 1%. No big deal. I'll just write it off when I have to pay my taxes next year. No big deal. No, he goes searching diligently until he finds the sheep. Every single one matters. And when he finds the sheep, what does he do? He carries it back. It's language reminiscent of Isaiah 40, verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. He doesn't berate the sheep. He doesn't beat the sheep. Even worse, he doesn't say, well, this one's so dumb. Let's just go ahead and butcher the sheep. He, he carries it. And then he brings it back. He tells his family and he celebrates. Hey, I found this lost sheep. It's joy. 
not judgment that is found when the sheep is restored. And such joy it overflows to other, others. And then Jesus applies this, verse 7, he says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. God cares about every single one. He does not look down and just see this mass of humanity. We're not just a number or a quota or a percentage. Each sinner is brought. And every single sinner brings delight to God in heaven when they come home. Jesus' statement regarding the 99 righteous is really a tongue-in-cheek, a subtle or not-so-subtle jab at the Pharisees, the religious leaders, because they think they're righteous. And yet he's called the people throughout the Gospels to repent, saying all need to repent. The problem is the religious leaders are self-righteous. Well, Jesus then tells the second parable, verse 8, and that is of a woman who has ten drachmas, or a type of coin, and she loses one of them. And what does she do? Again, she hunts diligently. She sweeps. She searches. She lights the lamp. Everything she can do until she finds it. And then when she finds it, exact same thing. She calls in the others, the friends, and says, let's rejoice. Let's celebrate because we have found the lost one. And Jesus is clearly saying this is what God is like. He passionately pursues those that are lost. Jesus will later say in Luke 19, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And Jesus again applies this. Verse 10, if you look at it, it says, Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Again, the the response of heaven this time by God's angels, is joy, celebration. And so Jesus is probing them and us. Are we rejoicing on earth at the lost being found? And these two parables, the first two are teaching us three amazing truths about God. First, God grieves over the lost, even though he has many others. James Montgomery Boyce, the former pastor of 10th Pres in Philadelphia, writes, We think of the misery of the sheep, the hopeless condition of the coin, or the degradation and bondage of the son. But Jesus begins, not with the object's loss, but with the loss sustained by the owners or father. That is, by God. You can read other religions and they get angry, they get wrathful when their creatures rebel. But God grieves does he also get wrathful yes but his grief causes him to seek to save them that his wrath might be turned from them and then ultimately on himself and you know what kind of amazing god is this he doesn't need us he could have just said they're lost they're gone i don't care i'll just create some others and yet in love he pursues and that's the second thing that god zealously seeks out the lost and he goes to great lengths to see them return. You know, we know this isn't just hunting for a coin. He had to give himself, Romans 5, 8. God shows his love for us and that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. God could not have searched, hunted, and found us with more effort than that. Third, God rejoices at the returning of the lost, even one. There's this thought 
at times where we need to reach out because our church isn't full. Or we need to reach out because we need to, whatever the case should be. We shouldn't reach out to fill a quota or make ourselves look good or to fill our seats. We reach out because it brings joy to God. We reach out because it's their need. You know, and so shouldn't that be our longing, though there would be people coming to Christ, coming home. Again, all of this is calling them and us to ask, are we rejoicing at people who repent? And Jesus drives this home by giving a third parable and probing, is there joy or grumbling in finding a lost son? Verses 11 through 32. And in this third parable, there's many similarities and yet jesus adds twist and turns from the first two parables because it begins with the younger son and this part of the story is well known he requests his part of his inheritance and the father gives it to him and then he goes off to the far country and squanders it in wild living and partying then with the famine he comes in such a miserable state and he thinks you know what i'm better to go back and beg to be a servant than to stay here as i am And yet when he comes, he's not even able to get his statement out before the father compassionately runs to him and puts his arms around him and welcomes him home. He gives him a fancy robe, a ring, and shoes, and then he throws a celebration. There's music, there's dancing, they kill the fattened calf, and there's joy and there's celebration. And so if you've been following the stories, there's a something that's lost, a sheep, a coin, a son. There's something that's found. There's celebration, and then there's a statement about heaven, of how heaven, too, is rejoicing at this, and yet that doesn't happen here. The pattern gets broken. The pattern of lost, found, celebrate, comment on heaven's joys abruptly ends. You see, Jesus is a master storyteller, for he draws the listeners in, but now he throws a twist. Rather than commenting on heaven, he now tells of the other, the older brother who does not have joy. You know, the third parable in a row can, can, makes us conclude, well, that's what we expect. He should have joy, but he doesn't. And if he hadn't told the first two parables, they might have all said, nah, well, he should be upset. That's right. And yet they're led along to go, oh, yeah, lost, found, rejoice. And they see something else. Because all we see now is a bitter and grumbling, angry older brother. You know, he comes in, verse 25 tells us, and he hears music. He hears dancing, and so he sends a young servant and asks, what's going on? And as he suspected, it's right to be angry because his younger brothers come back safe and sound, and the father's thrown a celebration. So he's not even going to go in the house. And so his father, he has to leave the party. He has to come out and entreat his older son to come in. Yeah, isn't that the beauty of these stories? The lead figure, whether it's the shepherd, the woman, or now the father, they go searching for the one that is not where it should be. You know, the father comes out. He's searching for the one where he should not be. And the father does not say, well, at least I got one son back. No major loss. He leaves the party. He goes to search for every single one. And as with the lost sheep and coin, it's a passionate search. Look at verse 28. Because in it, he says, it says that he 
entreats the son, pleading, longing for him to come in too, to persuade him. But then in verse 29, the older son responds with a bitter statement. He says, look. Sometimes you're talking to someone and you don't think they're understanding the facts the way they should understand them. So you say, look here. You're trying to get them to understand. Don't you understand? Look here, bucko. You need to understand what I'm telling you. And yet that's how he's talking to his father. He's challenging his father. And what does he say? He doesn't only say it in a rude way. He then says, I've been slaving for you. You, know, you could say, I've served you, but it's really more strongly, I've been slaving for you all these years. I'm like a slave working here, and you don't care about me. And so Jesus, he's told of a lost sheep. He's told of a lost coin. And I think this parable is more aptly entitled, Two Lost Sons. Yes, the prodigal son, he was lost in the far country, but the older son was lost even while he was in the near country. He was completely alienated from his father in heart. You know, the attitude expressed here is what was going on in the elder son for years because he was never serving the father out of joy. He was slaving for him for years. And then this leads to bitter anger and resentment towards the welcoming of the younger brother. He has no grace. He has no mercy or compassion towards his brother. And we even say that, see why? Because notice what he says. He says, I never disobeyed your command, verse 29. He's always obeyed. And we have to be cautious, especially as you read parables. You could stretch things beyond their intent. But yet remember the context. Jesus is talking to the religious leaders who delight to boast in what they've done. We'll see that in Luke 18. Who thank God that we're not like other men. You know, they think their religious piety makes them righteous, and so they look down on others. We're better than you. They're so good, they don't need grace. They just need to be rewarded for all the good things they've done. Now, it's at this point that we can slightly misunderstand humans and theology. Because if you go and you read rabbinic writings of this time, they say a relationship with God is all about grace. So this can't be what the prodigal son is saying. Well, you can go and look up people's statements of faith, their confessed theology, and they say salvation is all by grace. But what we truly believe about God is not just what's on a piece of paper or online. It's how we live each day. Are we trying to relate to God each day based on our goodness that day? Or are we trying to relate to God on his grace? that has welcomed us. And for the elder son, the religious leaders and many professed Christians today, our practice shows that it's all about our efforts that will please God. They may even strongly argue against you if you said that, no, 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 it's all about God's grace. And yet, how do they respond if other people are blessed? What is their response when life goes differently than they think it should go? What, would, what do they do when they desperately need something? They crave for something, a sick child or a, a new job. Do they say things like, well, better start going back to church. Well, better start reading my Bible and praying. And we really need God to hear us on this one. Well, if so, we're implying we have to do these good things to butter God up because then 
he'll be kind to us. He'll never be kind to us just because he's gracious and good. We kind of have to massage, work him up, get him in a good mood, ask him at the right time, and make sure we've been good. And in other words, we're focusing on our goodness and not God's grace. And thus the older son, he's going on this bitter tirade because his father's never thrown a party for him and his friends. In contrast to his perfect life that's never been honored, his father, he's, he's thrown a party for this son of yours who wasted all the money on prostitutes. As you notice how he distanced himself there? He didn't say, you threw a party for my brother. He said, this son, I don't even want anything to do with him. He's your son, he's not my brother. And the father, verse 31, again entreats the older son saying, son, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. We're seeing again the same pattern of the lost sheep, the lost coin, that the one who loses it continues to search and hunt. The father doesn't give up on the elder son. He continues to persist in trying to get him to come in. You know, the patience and extraordinary love of God that seeks us is being shown there. And the father, notice what he says, verse 31, he says, son. He didn't respond to the look here with, well, look here yourself. I'm your dad and you better listen. No, son. He doesn't respond anger with anger. He has a soft anger, hoping to turn away wrath and welcome the son. Notice he answered the son's objections. You know, the son is basically probably thinking, well, look, he's welcoming back. He already got his share of the inheritance. Has he given him mine too? Well, no, the father says, look, everything I have is yours. Don't think I'm going to give him back a portion of the estate. That wouldn't be fair. And then there's a second objection. Look, you shouldn't be celebrating. But he answers that too because he says, look, he was dead. Now he's alive. He was lost and found. Yes, we should be celebrating in fact, it's a necessity to rejoice. You know, if one throws a party at a lost sheep being found and a lost coin being found, how much more should one celebrate when not just a lost, but a dead son is brought to life? And the father even subtly rebukes the elder brother, for he calls the prodigal your brother. He doesn't own it. Well, yeah, that's my son. He says, your brother has been found. The relationship of brother to brother should bring joy even. And has it been perhaps that the elder brother was never concerned for his younger brother? And then something happens amazingly next in the passage. And that is, it ends. Well, what happens? Does the elder brother come into the party? Or does he stay outside? Well, Jesus leaves it open-ended because it's an open-ended call and challenge to the religious leaders and us. Where are we going to be? Are we going to stay focusing on our goodness and looking down on others? Or are we going to rejoice when tax collectors and sinners are brought home? Because they need to realize that they are the elder brother who focuses more on their supposed righteousness than on their own lostness and alienation from the Father. And so when you see this parable, what do you think of? I think often when we see it, we think, parable of the prodigal son, and there is many truths, and we'll focus on that next week, but hopefully we've also seen 
that it's really a parable about two lost sons, that both need to be restored because they were both alienated from the Father. You know, the religious leaders are attacking Jesus for eating with tax collectors and sinners, and he's been defending himself, showing, look, God finds joy at welcoming repentant sinners. But Jesus goes on beyond that because he describes the religious leader's problem. Well, what's that? It's that they don't realize their ongoing need for grace. As we said earlier, they would definitely have said, no, 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 it's not about us. It's about God's grace that we need. But the way they lived focused not on God's grace, but their goodness. And as always happens, when we focus on ourself, the root of pride grows and deepens. And as the root of pride deepens and grows, the ugly fruits of it get manifested. The first ugly fruit is deep anger and bitterness when life turns differently than you had expected. Now, please don't hear me wrong. I didn't say sorrow. It's right to weep when life goes wrong. There's natural to be sorrowful when life goes different when it, than you expected. But bitterness often stems from something else. Bitterness grows because we think we deserved better. Sorrow only wishes for experiencing better. You know, the, when the root of pride grows, we lose sight of our sin and our need for God's grace, and our pride thinks, I deserve rewards, praise, and admiration. Saying I deserve and saying I need grace are in conflict with one another because grace is completely undeserved. This often leads to the second ugly fruit of pride, and that is a life always focused in comparing with others. It's hard to be proud when you're comparing yourself to God, but when you compare yourself to others, there's always prodigals. Prodigals in our society, prodigals in your family, prodigals in your workplace. And we can sneer and look down our nose and oh, can't believe those people. And yet when our sights are zeroed in, not on others, but on God, we realize, I need grace. I can't feel superior anymore. And sadly, we don't do that, though. So we condescend on others. Or if there are people better in our country, workplace, or home, we get jealous and envious. We're unable to rejoice with those who rejoice or weep with those who weep. If we're honest, we internally smile at their weeping and we weep at their rejoicing. Could there be anything uglier? Well, this leads to the third ugly fruit, as that is we treat others only with harsh justice and little to no forgiveness and grace. It's like the older brother. There could be no joy at the prodigal son, prodigal brother coming home, for he doesn't deserve that good treatment. It's there we have to realize he doesn't. The prodigal son does not deserve to be treated that way. However, God acts with grace, not with injustice, but with the giving of justice to another. And this lack of grace shows up in his attitude. Even while I would suspect his actions were quite different. This is the elder brother. He did everything right. I'm sure he gave to the synagogue the, the amount to missions every quarter. He was proud that we're sending off the Jonas to go to Nineveh. And yet, like the Jonas who go to Nineveh, they're not so sure they actually want the people to repent. Here we read of that story earlier 
And what did Jonah say? Once the Ninevites repented and God showed mercy, he said, Oh Lord, is this not why I said I was yet in my own country that I didn't want to go? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Rather than God's love being shed abroad and him rejoicing, makes him mad. I'd just rather die. This is horrible. And all of this stemming from pride that focuses on our goodness instead of God's grace. Tim Keller summarizes this well by writing, The elder brother is not losing the father's love in spite of his goodness, but because of it. It is not his sins that create the barrier between him and his father. It's the pride he has in his moral record. It's not his wrongdoing, but his righteousness that is keeping him from sharing in the feast of the Father. And all of this is pointing to the truth that public, passionate sins like the prodigal, though they're wrong, they are matched, if not even surpassed, by the ugliness of the private sins of the proud. God says he rejects the proud but gives grace to the humble. So then what's the solution? Well, the chief of all elder brothers, the Apostle Paul, lets us know. It's not in being the prodigal, nor in being proud, but in being connected to Christ by humbling ourselves. Paul said it this way, we read it earlier, Philippians 3, 7-9. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul learned that rather than focusing on himself, He considered his good deeds as nothing, as rubbish in comparison to Christ and what Christ did for him. The older brother misunderstands the problem because the problem is not, I need to be good. The problem is he needs to be perfect. He has set his standards too low. And if he sees the standard as perfection, he would realize he could only get there by God's grace. And so here, he needs to throw himself at God's feet in mercy. And then that will produce the fruit of love and joy. The basic error behind all this is the thought that God doesn't want what's good for me. So I either need to be the prodigal and go run and find life outside of the rules, because then there's life, or God's not really good, so I have to slave away doing what God tells me and pry from his hands goodness. You know, sadly, many people have this attitude, oh, have to go to church, have to give, have to serve on a committee, have to do all that stuff, because I want God to bless me, and that's the good thing to do, and yet they hate it the whole time. And Jesus is showing us through the story, look, you don't have to pry from God's hands goodness. What does the father do when the prodigal comes home? He rushes out. 
He didn't wait for him to be good. He wants to bestow blessing. You know, at no time of the year do we understand this more than now. Because what's probably gone on many a shelf? The elf. What are many parents going to say to their kids? Well, you better watch out. Better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa's coming. And if you want to get something good, you better be good. And that elf, he's going to appear somewhere else, and he's watching you. And so you've got to be good. Because if you're not good, you're not going to get a blessing at Christmas. And so parents manipulate and twist their kids into goodness, but it's not goodness because of God. It's goodness because of, I've got to pry. I've got, I got to earn this present. If you enjoy the Calvin Hobbes comics, there's a litany of strips on this idea. And one of them, he's talking to his pet tiger Hobbes, and he says, I've got a plan. If I do ten spontaneous acts of goodwill a day from now until Christmas, Santa will have to be lenient in judging the rest of this year. Hobbes replies, well, here's your chance. Susie's coming this way. At that, Calvin bends down and starts making a snowball and says, well, maybe I'll start tomorrow and do 20 a day. He has no desire to do good. He wants to nail Susie with another snowball. Oh, it'll be great. Life is found in breaking the rules. But at Christmas, I want to be blessed, so I'm going to have to suffer through. I'm going to have to slave away. I'm going to slave and force myself to be good. That way I get a present. And Jesus is telling us, you don't have to slave away. You don't need to be a prodigal and run away. Realize I want to bless you. Be good because I am good. God does not have to be forced to be good. He loves to bless us. The only thing that separates us, that keeps him from ultimately always bestowing good, is our sin. Sin in being prodigals and sin in being prideful. So humble yourself. Look to Christ and delight in his grace. Tim Keller writes, Though the older one stayed at home, he was actually more distant and alienated from the father than his brother because he was blind to his true condition. Neither son loved the father for himself. They both were using the father for their own self-centered ends rather than loving, enjoying, and serving him for his own sake. This means that you can rebel against God and be alienated from either him either by breaking his rules or by keeping all of them diligently. It's a shocking message. Careful obedience to God's law may serve as a strategy for rebelling against God. I don't know what you've heard all your years of growing up, but the message of Christianity is not be good and God will bless you. That's moralism. The message of Christianity is you're not good enough. You never could be, but Christ loves you and he sent his son to die for you and he alone restores you to the Father. You don't need to pry from his hand. Just come to him. Come home. Many of you have probably read the Laura Ingalls Wilder series. And in one of the books, it's a fascinating discussion. It's in a little town on the prairie, and she's talking with her sister Mary. And Mary was always the perfect child. She was the older child. I don't know how that works out, but nonetheless, maybe that's a pattern in family's life. And Laura tells Mary, Mary, you are always good. It made me so mad sometimes I wanted to slap you. But now you're good without even trying. Mary then honestly confessed, 
I know you why you wanted to slap me. It was because I was showing off. I wasn't really wanting to be good. I was showing off to myself what a good little girl I was and being vain and proud, and I deserved to be slapped for it. And they could continue talking, and Laura said, like, somehow she realized that, but still, nevertheless, Mary, you seem so good. You don't even seem to try, and you're good. And then she asked, Mary, how can you be good without even thinking about it? And Mary, and to fully appreciate, you have to realize that Mary was blind and lived in a one-room shack. And she replies, I don't know how to say what I mean very well, but it isn't so much thinking as just knowing, just being sure of the goodness of God. You know, that's what leads to being the truly good son, is knowing the goodness of God, that he wants to bless us. And that's why we sing, joy to the world, the Lord has come. That is the joy we have. Not that we get any other, any other thing, that we get him. He has come, he who is all goodness. And not only is that joy, it should then lead us wanting that joy for others. That we want them to come home. And so we end this morning singing, go tell it on the mountain. Because we want others to share in the wonderful joy of coming home. Let's pray and then sing together. Oh Lord, we are so prone to look at ourselves and all the good things we've done. And yet, when we're honest, they are filthy rags. They are rubbish in comparison to what your Son has given us in his perfect life. May we see and delight in your goodness, the goodness that ultimately sent your Son in the flesh, that we might come home, that we might know you. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.